0: Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Maybe you came into this year and you looked back to last year and you're so afraid this year is going to be a repeat. That you look at 2019 and the the goals that you had and the dreams that you would determined and the thoughts that you thought would happen. And all of a sudden, mid-29 comes in, 2019, and your bank account isn't changing. Your body weight's not changing. Your marriage is not changing. And I feel like after you've gone through enough of those years, You start to kind of get a little skeptical, you still play the game, but you start to get a little skeptical of what really can change in your life, what can really change in your marriage. One of the things that was deeply moving for us this week was to be able to pray for some of you. Such an amazing amount of response from you last week where I just asked you at the end of the message, I said, hey, write down what it is that you need to let go of that has a hold of you. And to be honest, it was deeply moving to see what it is that you wrote down and to have been able to be praying for you in the midst of that. And know that an entire month, um, our team is getting together regularly to pray through each one of those items that was dropped in the bucket. And so even now, if you wish you would have dropped it last week because you're like, wait, what are they going to do? Or, you know, it's just I couldn't bring myself to put it in that bucket. Um, inside of the app, you can hit prayer requests. We would love to add that to our list and to be able to pray for you this month. Because deep down inside, I I know what you know. That this probably won't be a perfect year. But I believe sincerely for each one of us it can be a better one. And that this series is about how we can experience a better year, not a perfect year. Because that's going to overpromise and you're going to find it's going to underdeliver, but a better year is possible for all of us. And last week, we looked at one of the barriers and one of the problems that gets in the way. And today, I want to look at another barrier and another problem that can get in the way of us experiencing better. I don't know about you, but um, besides technology that doesn't work, my second least favorite thing in the world is customer service phone calls. I mean, there is nothing more life-sucking than being put on hold and the same 30-second loop of bad music being replayed And somehow, as if it was supposed to make us feel better, you hear, sorry, we're experiencing over call volume today, which happens every day, which I don't think you can actually say we're surprised by the call volume if it's every single day of the year, right? But that's a digression. We're sorry, we're experiencing um, a surge in customer service calls. Know that our customer service representatives will be with you shortly. And then out of nowhere comes this robotic voice. Your approximate waste time is 325 minutes. And you're like, my battery's going to die before I get a human on the phone. And um, I hate them, which is why when I came across this um, business study, um, With Expedia, I found a new hero. His name's Ryan. Ryan's in charge of um, the customer service call group, at least he was in 2012, when Expedia was trying to navigate one frustrating problem they had. You see, um, for every 100 customers that booked through Expedia.com, which was a budget um, kind of service to get cars and uh, flights and hotels, for every 100 of those customers booking through Expedia.com, 58 of them would find themselves eventually on a customer service call. I mean, so statistically speaking, you had a, if you bought through Expedia, you were going to end up calling them before you left on your trip. And Ryan over this customer service group um, had been navigating the problem the way most companies do. How do we make sure the customers are going to be happy at the end of the phone call, which is not possible. How are we going to make them feel like that we care about them? And it's not through a script that tells you, oh, I understand your frustration. And you're like, you don't know me. You don't know what it's like to not have internet in my house for 15 minutes. Like, you don't know me. And it's not through any of that. For Expedia, every single phone call that they got in the customer service center cost them roughly about $5 a phone call. And so they had been tackling the problem like many companies do. How do we make it faster? How do we make it more efficient? How do we get our customers off the phone as quickly as possible, as happily as possible? And Ryan took a step back and said, why are they calling in the first place? We're an internet company. We're not a phone company. And as Ryan began to dig in, what he realized was that a majority of the calls, in fact, All centered around one thing. The biggest reason people called Expedia.com was because they needed a copy of their itinerary. They were getting on an airplane or they were going to a hotel and they didn't know when the flight was and they didn't know what the hotel name was because they would booked it months ago. And Ryan was like, why don't people have their itinerary? And as he began to dug in, he's like, oh, we get bad email addresses, but there's no no way you can get the Expedia.com itinerary on Expedia.com. So that's a problem. And so he mobilized his team to start tackling the real problem, not just the reactionary one that they were dealing with. See, it was reactionary to try to make the phone calls faster, get them from five minutes to two minutes. The real problem was that the people should have never been calling in the first place. And that's what he dug into, and that's what he solved. He solved the better problem. And because he solved the better problem, Expedia got better. In fact, in 2012, just for you to feel the weight of what Ryan accomplished, there were 20 million calls all centered around needing a copy of an itinerary. At $5 a call, that was a $100 million problem. And with very little work, but with a lot of insight, Expedia in the year later had completely erased all of those phone calls. To now, Expedia.com today gets 15% call volume. So out of the 100 customers who may call, of the one who book online, only 15 end up calling. And they end up being for more legitimate reasons that requires some type of human interaction. They went from 58% to 15% because Ryan solved the right problem, the better problem. And that's what I want to walk through today with you. We talked about last week how to let go of those things that are holding us back. But before we move into better, we need to realize there's another barrier, which is that oftentimes we're not solving the right problems. We're not solving the better problems. We react. We don't respond to the deeper issue. And today's passage, I think, gives us brilliant insight to that deeper problem that gets in the way of us experiencing better in our life. It's written, it's found, actually, um, in the book of Proverbs, which is, if you've been around Encounter Church, you know I like Proverbs. The book of Proverbs was written almost 3,000 years ago by one of the wisest kings who had ever lived. His name was Solomon, and he wrote it to prepare his children for taking over royalty and the responsibilities of what came with royalty. The other thing, the reason I like Proverbs so much is because when I became a Christian as an adult, one of my burning questions was, how do I live out this Jesus life? How do I do it? I don't like platitudes. I I don't like pithy statements that have no meaning. We're filled with a world where people say stupid stuff all the time, like it means something, and then you feel stupid because you don't actually understand it. Like when people are like, let go and let God. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But I've been in rooms where people legitimately say, you know what you need to do? You just need to let go and let God. And I'm like, what is that? What does it mean to let go and let God. And so when I became a Christian, partially because of how my brain's wired, I was super fascinated with, well, how do I do this thing called the Christian life? Jesus is at the center of my life. He's changed my life. So how do I live it out in my life? And early in my journey, I came across the book of Proverbs. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is how you do it. And one of the things that makes Proverbs interesting is when you understand the historical context. And the passage that we're going to look at today that helps us understand how we can solve the better problem or what that better problem is in the first place, um, is I think has far more compelling um, when you understand why Solomon's writing it in the first place. See, Solomon writes in um, chapter 4, verse 20 through 23, um, which you'll find loaded in the Encounter Church app already. He, He writes these words. He's writing it to his son. He says, my son, the future king. Pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's body. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Now, the reason Solomon writes this at the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, if you um, were to study it and outline it, you'll, you'll notice it's, Proverbs has a very distinct kind of flow to it. And the first um, kind of third of the book is dedicated to um, really training you why you should think this way. And then the second third and the final third gets into the what you should be thinking portion. But Solomon writes this not as like some disconnected Yoda with wise sage words. He writes this having grown up in a front row seat, to one of Israel's greatest kings, a man named David, whose fame um, transcends even the religious communities in which would kind of claim him. I mean, you can't watch the Final Four or, or some other epic sports game without hearing sometimes the analogy of David and Goliath thrown in. I mean, David's fame transcends time. He's, he's kind of he's a big deal. And so Solomon had watched him. David wasn't this idea. David wasn't this metaphor. David was his father. And he'd watched David build an empire. He'd watched David lead a kingdom and mobilize men and build armies and transform lives. He'd saw David, through the choices he made, lead people's lives to places where they thrived. And he also saw David through the choices choices he made make and lead people into places where they died. This was life and death. He had witnessed firsthand the power of what this royal situation would bring to his children and to himself. And this is why he centers on this theme at the very opening, is because David's heart, when you dig into the moments where Israel's, Israel had thrived and where Israel had died, it all centered on what came out of David's heart. David's heart had influenced and impacted a nation. Now, when you hear the word heart, you and I might kind of drift to this sounds a little bit like what a cardiologist would say to you in a checkup, right? You should be guarding your heart health. But the ancient Hebrew people didn't think of the word heart the way we think of it we know the heart is here and we know it pumps blood but metaphorically for the ancient jewish people the heart they actually believed kind of centered in here and the reason why is when you had devastating news or when you got really nervous and excited your heart would flutter well no your stomach would churn a little bit you'd feel the rumble or you'd feel the pain and that this was where they believed the heart lived and the word heart, really, for us to import their understanding, we would have to use the word mind. They saw the heart as the center of the intellect, as the emotions and the will. That's where The heart is where your thoughts came from. And so when we read the, read the word heart, it may be easier for you to read the word mind into the midst of it. That it's really about guarding your mind. The thoughts, the emotions, the choices you're making. All of that resides and flows out of your mind. Solomon is saying, look, as humans, we have a thinking problem. And the thinking problem is at the core of most of the problems in our life. It's the better problem to solve. I think a great illustration of this, right, is the internet. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I'm weird. I think about this. Um, if someone from like Solomon's age dropped into your conversation or the course of your life today, they would almost attribute you to have like godlike omniscience, because any question uh, in in our household we do this all the time. Uh, it'll be like, I, I wonder, I wonder how much a slug weighs, or I wonder how fast a sparrow can fly, and and it's like we just say Siri right? Alexa, we just asked the question and some like mythical being sparks up and is like, yes, master. Oh, the answer is two inches a second, right? I mean, it's like, there it is. There's the information we're seeking. So we have in our fingertips at our, like in your pockets or in your hand right now is all of the collective human knowledge of our entire species, You want to know how tall the Empire State Building is? You want to know how deep the deepest part of the ocean is or what the temperature on Mount Everest is right now? You can know it instantly. You don't have to be there. You don't have to have a thermometer. You just ask that mythical being that is there to serve you. Or you just sit down and Google, how do I cut my fingernails? And wham, there's a YouTube video. I have repaired so much stuff on my car by sitting down at YouTube and saying, how do I? And then there's Bob in his garage at his house with his bad camera showing me exactly how to do it. From light bulbs to disciplining children to surprise announcements to finding a better job. Like it's all there in our fingertips. And what have we done as humans with this collective power that has been put in our hands? What do do we do with it? We, We make videos of cats flying through outer space. We use images over and over with funny little meme quotes on them. We sit down and Google things we already have decided what we think about them and skip over all the sites that would run against what we think, and click on the site that we already think that agrees with us. And we call that research. I mean, this is what we do with the most powerful information in the world. We use it to reconfirm our already bad thinking. I mean... It's kind of sad when you think about what we have in our hands and what we do with it. And Solomon understood 3,000 years ago that we have a thinking problem. We have a tendency to dismiss what we should listen to and we listen to what we should have dismissed. And we do it over and over and over and we call it thinking. And Solomon's like, this is a very human problem we have to deal with. It's a thinking problem. Because the thoughts that you have are shaping the life that you're living. And if you and I want better to be in our tomorrow, then we have to take control of our thoughts today. Because the, the life that you will live tomorrow is going to grow out of the thoughts that you have today and this is a distortion this is a brokenness this is a tendency that we have we have a thinking problem and it requires constant vigilance because it's hard i mean let's just be honest like many of us like we love that we're out of school because we don't have to think anymore because thinking is hard work. 20% of your calories, I think it's somewhere in the realm of 20% of your calories that you consume every day is, is being burned in this little tiny five-pound gray mass inside of your skull. It's a consuming part of our body. And, and you can normally tell, like at the end of the day, it's like, look, don't, I, I'm done. I can't think anymore. Don't ask me any more hard questions. Like my brain is fried. Like we, we can literally feel when our brain is just done. That's normally when Netflix comes on or Facebook pops up on our phone because we're just done thinking. And we just want to scroll and see what other people are doing. And we want to laugh at funny cat memes or surprise proposal videos or whatever. I mean, that's what consumes us. And yet when Solomon is speaking to his children, he's saying, look, here's the diligence that you need to have, he says, above all else, the most important thing you're going to do, the most critical thing you're going to do as a leader is to guard your heart or guard your mind. It's the utmost important thing, son, daughter. Hear me. It's your mind. You need to mind that. So um, somehow, whenever we go to the zoos, we find ourselves in these bird exhibits. I don't know if you've ever been to a zoo where you you pay to get into the zoo and then you get to this place where there's this bird room that's about half the size of this room. And, you know, it's like you pay a couple dollars to get into that little bird room and then you pay a couple more dollars to buy sugar water or like a little stick that has sugar on it for the birds to come and land on you and they'll peck at it and lick it with their little tiny little bird tongue. And, you know, and so it's, you walk into this room, And there are birds everywhere. And when I read this passage, I think about me walking into that bird room. Because I come alive when I go into that bird room. I'm just gonna be real with you, right? Like I may have not been paying attention, I may not have been tuned in to all the animals in the course of that day. But when I step foot into that bird, you walk into that first door, they close it behind you, and then the person says, Here we go, and they open up the second door. And you walk in, and they close it behind you, and all of a sudden, all of these colorful birds are flying around, landing on people's hands and licking out of their little tiny containers. I'm like, inside of me, I'm just like, when can we leave? Because I don't see cute little birds. I see little tiny poo bombers just waiting to hit targets. I'm like, where are they at? It's like, Ella, you, you ready? You ready to go, boo? Come on. Okay, well, let, let the, Just pour the, pour the liquid out. They'll lick it off the ground. Come on, come on. We're making it through here without getting pooed on. And it's like, oh no, the bird's on me. And I'm like this holding the bird because I'm like, you are not getting me, man. You are not getting me right now. I mean, when I walk into one of those rooms, I am like whew, vigilant, diligent, tuned in to everything, anything that might happen in the moment because I know if I'm not paying attention, The next three, four, seven hours at that zoo, there's going to be poo right there. Or there's going to be poo right there. And I don't want poo anywhere. Maybe it's just me. But that's what happens to me when we step into that room. And when I was reading this passage, I was like, oh, my goodness. That's the level of diligence, vigilance, alertness that Solomon is trying to communicate to his son. He's like, son, you have to be on it. Baby girl, you've got to be aware of what's going on up there. Because it's shaping your life. It's shaking your life if you're not careful. Because thoughts, they feel like they don't, they're just they're just bouncing around. But what happens up here eventually spills out there. Because what you're paying attention to is actually paving a way to the where you're headed to. And this. Guard, your heart has such a a heavy urgency in the way that Solomon writes it and throwing the above all else on the front of it that Solomon is essentially saying to his children, the most important thing you're going to do is pay attention. And that if you're not careful, you can miss the most dangerous things creeping into your life, which is an idea. That you have to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. That's why he says in verse 20 at the very beginning, my son, pay attention to what I say. And then he says, turn your ears to my words. And then he goes to the negative. He's repeated it twice. Now, the some version of pay attention. Then he goes to the negative to reemphasize it. He says, do not let them out of your sight. And then he goes back to the, the third, which he's going to set up for this final sentence in verse 23. He says, keep them in your heart. Which means to think about them, to memorize them, to meditate on them, to let them linger inside of your brain and to turn them over and over and over and over again. And he's saying, but unless you're paying attention to what you're paying attention to, you'll miss it. Because we have a thinking problem. And yet the best way to experience a better tomorrow is to grab hold of our thoughts today. So I remember uh, we'd been married about seven years, and when my daughter was finally, when my wife told me, hey, I'm pregnant, I remember the chair I was sitting at in the upstairs room, and I remember where she was sitting on the couch, and I remember her saying the words, I am pregnant, and I began to cry. Now, if you spend enough time with me, you realize I, I don't just spontaneously cry a lot. That's not just my wiring. But, I mean, I I broke down and began to weep. And the reason why was because that was the first time in my life my struggle now had a potential to be someone else's struggle. You see, I had been diagnosed with OCD um, in the later years of high school and college, and I had personally experienced how my thought life had almost killed me. And now, here I am learning that someone who I don't know yet, but someone who I already love, could potentially have this thing that has almost destroyed my life. And that's why I wept. Because I was so scared and I was so afraid that what had almost killed me could be living inside of her. And it's still a fear. My biggest fear, honestly, is that. I have to constantly check myself because if I'm not careful, I'll overreact to any moment that I think that she's not thinking. I'll overreact to any moment where I see emotions that I feel like edge on how I would have handled emotions. And she's eight, which is probably not a good sign for me when she's 13 to 15. Like, I may just have to, like, go hike the Appalachian Trail or something to, like, give me some type of distance for her own protection. But what has happened because of it is it is from day one, I have been very intentional about trying to think how to talk to my daughter about her thought life. Because I decided, okay, I'm not going to overreact. It may not even be there. But I'm going to make sure if it is there, I prepare her for it when it shows up which means that we have a lot of discussion in our house around thinking, around thinking about how we respond to our emotions, around thinking about how we respond to our thoughts. And one of the things that I say to her frequently is like, sweetheart, you are not responsible to what flies into your brain. But you are able to control what you allow to land and linger. Like you can't control those little birds zooming through your brain. But you do get to control which one you let land, which one you dwell on. Like we we want to think that we're victims of our thought life when we're really the controllers of our thought life. We, we don't control what flies in. But then what happens is we take that extension that we don't control that and what, we just surrender control to what lands. And now we're thinking about what they said to us last night. We're thinking how they meant it to hurt us and how they used that word because they were trying to dig in. And we just, we ruminate on it, which is, comes from the word for where we call cows, ruminants, this whole block of species of animals. Because the way they consume their food is they chew it. And they've got this like multi-stomach set up. And so they chew it, then they spit it up. They chew it again and then they swallow it into the next stomach. Then they spit it up, chew it up and swallow it into the next stomach. And that's called rumination. And we do the same thing with our minds. that comment your coworker made, that dig your spouse made, that comment that after that ball game where you messed up and your team lost, and your dad said that statement to you about you couldn't handle pressure, and that was when you were 12 and now you're 42 and it still comes up inside of you because you've been ruminating on that statement that was said over your life 30 years ago and you just keep spitting it up, chewing it and swallowing it and spitting it up and chewing it and swallowing it and every moment that bumps up against that thing just sends it right back up and you think about it again thoughts of worthlessness and a nobody and all the things that you've done they just bubble back up and we don't even we don't even think about it we never tune our little tuners to what's happening up there and is like look you got to pay attention to what you're paying attention to you need to be focused on what you're focused on and and he gives them a little bit of an insight he he says, look, one of the areas that you need to be paying attention to is what you're letting in, what you're listening to, what you're consuming. Because what you let in can linger. And so I'm cognizant, especially because of my OCD. I'm very careful about what I let into my brain. I don't watch a lot of television. I, I miss so much of what happens in every day. People are like, do you see this? Did you know about this? Did you know? I'm like, nope. No clue. And I don't watch much television. Why? Because I'm just so careful about what I let in my brain. That's not, that's not descriptive. That's not what you should do. That's just that's what I have to do. Because the level of my mind is so ramped up that if I'm not careful, everything that comes in sticks. I have a really good memory, and it's a terrifying thing when your brain's obsessive and compulsive. You take good memory, and you mix it into that, and you are literally shaking up and making a bomb. And so because of that, I I take what Solomon says for me, and I apply it to that level of my life. I'm careful about what I let in. I'm careful about where I let, let my mind dwell and what I linger. Because you can't just pay attention to what you're letting in. You also have to be aware there's things circling, and you have to pay attention to what you're letting land. And that's oftentimes where my conversations with Ella comes into. I'm like, sweetie, like I know that thought. That's disruptive, or that's frustrating, or that feeling feels so powerful. But, sweetheart, you're in control. You are powerful. You are more powerful than the strongest thoughts you hear in your head. But, daddy, it feels so strong. I'm like, sweetheart, if I took a megaphone and I screamed in your ear, you're a pink elephant, would that make it true? What if I said it over and over, would that make it true? Well, no, daddy, that's silly. That's not true. I'm like, well, neither is that thought about you either. But what happens is when we, let a, when we let it linger, the voice that it came in changes into our voice. Their words become our words. They said it once, but we keep repeating it. And when we hear something in our voice, it, we trust it. We don't question it. We just listen to it. This goes back to what Solomon picked up on that the internet illustrates for us regularly. We have a thinking problem. We tend to dismiss what we should have listened to, and we listen to that which we should have dismissed. We let it linger. And eventually, it lurks underneath the surface and it starts affecting how we live our lives. And so you should be paying attention to what's floating around. And since it's impossible, because I recognize It can feel overwhelming to imagine living your life with your brain the way I walk around a birdcage. Okay? And and, and it may not even be 100% possible for us to always be tuned in to what's happening inside of our head. But one of the kind of life hacks in learning how to control our thought life is being aware of what leaks out. You know, those moments where it seems like what you said was a little stronger than what the moment called for. The words you said, the response you had. I was, I was watching this, uh, this, this video, I like learning. So I was watching this guy who was an FBI negotiator, and he was talking about what motivated him. And then uh, the person asked him a question about his childhood, and he starts telling this story about um, when he was eight years old, how he was bullied. And how as he was walking home one day, one of the first moments of being bullied stood out to him, this really large kid in the neighborhood came up and grabbed him and was holding him and he couldn't get away. And he he said, while I was being held, I could hear my mom calling my name, saying it was dinner time. And here I was trapped in the arms of this person wanting so desperately to be with my mom and to be sitting at the table with my family in a safe place eating dinner. But I couldn't go anywhere because this huge kid was holding me. And nothing I could do would cause him to let go of me. And he's telling that story and all of a sudden he starts to cry. And he's like, I'm sorry. I, I don't know why that just affected me at that level. That... Man, that caught me off guard. And as I'm watching that video, I'm like, dude, this is why you're an FBI negotiator. This is why you negotiate hostages being released. Because you are trying to save people from that defining moment of your life when you were eight years old. Because all of these people are sons and daughters who have their mother crying out for dinner and they can't because someone stronger than them has has hold. You're trying to save the eight-year-old version of you. Over and over and over and over again. That's why you're so passionate. And that's why you're so good. But he never thought about that before. But see, if you're paying attention to what leaks out, what frustrates you most about other people is often a picture or an insight to what's frustrating inside of you. We want to blame it on them. We want to say, You make me so angry when you don't tell me where you're going to be. You make me so mad. When you don't follow through. And it's like, no, no, no. It's not about them. It's about them stirring up something that's already inside of you. And when you pay attention to what leaks out, you can have insight to what's lingering underneath the surface. If I wanted to really bore you, I'd tell you about my eighth grade insight I had when I read a book called Flowers for Algernon. I will not. But I remember as an eighth grader reading a book, which I don't remember reading that many books when I was little. But that book has never left me. Because that book, I remember closing that book and being so emotionally wrecked by it that over 20 years I've gained so much insight to what's going on underneath the surface of my life because I've gone back to that moment. Because eighth grade version of me had something stirred up, and I've been able to go back to that memory as I've aged, as I've gotten wiser, as as I've had wise counselors in my life, to gain deeper insight to some of the things that lurk beneath the surface that has shaped my life that I have never verbalized in the first place. And the punchline for me was it had to do with my brain and my mind. I was bullied as a kid, and then in seventh grade, I'm identified in this, like, gifted and talented test and whatever, and thrown into this classroom of people. And this kid in the book, he had never been smart, and then he takes this pill, and it makes him smart. And for the first time in his life, he's, he's intelligent. And he's popular. And then he loses it because the pill doesn't, it wasn't permanent. And what I've realized over 20 years is what wrecked me in that book was because I'd been bullied, I'd been laughed at, I'd never excelled in anything. And now for the first time in my entire life as a little eighth grader, I was given something that might be something that I had that made me special, that made me have worth, that made me have value. And and as quickly as it was handed to me, that story stirred up something inside of me that made me realize I could lose it as quickly as I'd gotten it. And I was so afraid that that test was a fluke. I'm not as smart as they thought I was, and I'm really just a nobody. And that goes even deeper. But I'm telling you, what leaks out can be a really, really helpful well to mine for you, because the past is not behind you. Your past is in you. It's living there. And Solomon understands the power of our thoughts. And for some of you, because I read what what you wrote, just let me say over you, Quit letting what people have said to you in your past rob you of the future that you could have. They are not omniscient. They do not know you. They were broken too. They were hurting too. And the words that they said over you do not have to be the final word about you. Yet maybe in sixth grade or maybe in your 20s, you did some things, you said some things, you acted some ways. But their words about you, their description of you in that season of life does not have to determine the life sentence that you live. And some of you, in 2020, you really do need to let go of what they said about you. Because when you replay what they say, you give them power over your life. And I don't know about you, but isn't it time for you to take back control of your life and let that go? Isn't it about time that you quit trying to live under the prison sentence of what they've said over your life and start to walk in the freedom in your life? I just, my heart went out to some of you when I was reading through this. Because as, as parents, we, we miss the fact that sometimes the words that we say and the things that we do, they stick and they go through into adulthood. And there's a freedom and a path for you that you can have, which is ultimately what Solomon alludes to that Jesus picks up on over a thousand years later. So um, I love history. And one of the things that fascinates me, um, I went on this kick around um, nuclear reactors and wanting to understand how they work. And so um, naturally you drift into Chernobyl, right? Which is, one of these devastating moments in human history around um, nuclear power and devastation of things that fall apart. And so when, you know, we won't get into the history lesson of why Chernobyl happens. What's interesting is here's April, I think, 1986, and the plume goes up into the atmosphere and the prevailing winds on the globe at the time, no one knew it, but it was actually causing the all of that radio fallout, all all of that nuclear fallout to start to drift over Europe. And as the days turned in the weeks, people started getting these kind of hits on these radiological detectors that were like, wait a second, we have a thousand times more radiation than we should have right now. Where's this coming from? And they began to look up and realize the winds were blowing it. And so on May 2nd of that year, just... Uh, I think about 10 days after Chernobyl, the the winds hit a rising rain cloud that was forming above the uplands of England. Wales and um, Northern Ireland, that, that, that section, which is known for its rainfall. And what no one knew at the time was all of that nuclear radiation was creeping into those rain clouds and was merging with the raindrops. And what fell that day? 1% of... All of the fallout of Chernobyl fell as rain over England in a very specific and tight defined area. And as they begin to realize that, what happened was that rain fell into the uplands. What made the uplands so unique is that the type of soil there sucks in water and keeps it. And then that water gets absorbed by grass. And that grass, because of that region and what happened in that region, it was an area where sheep farmers graze their sheep. Now the sheep in that area are tainted. And for over 30 years, you could not eat sheep from that region without extensive testing. That 20 plus years later, sheep were still being slaughtered. Because of an accident, thousands upon thousands of miles away, that got into the water supply. And that water supply, that tainted well, began to affect everything. We see that even in our recent news, right, with Flint, Michigan. It was the same story. Unfortunately, there's been multiple stories like that scattered around our nation, where a tainted water supply ended up robbing and damaging and making a whole region sick. And... Solomon's last words in this passage is he says, for everything you do flows from it. And the word flows from it invokes this image of a well, this water supply. And what's interesting is Jesus comes along almost a thousand years later and he takes this verse, he takes this verse and he goes and he teases out what Solomon ends that statement with. When he says that out of you shall come living waters. Living waters were the type of waters that brought life. They were the type of water that wasn't tainted. The ancient worldview, you would call water that was dead water that could make you sick. Water that had kind of gotten stagnant and things had begun to grow in it. But living water was water that flowed that didn't have a tainted supply source. And so Jesus comes along and says, because of me, you can have a living waters flowing out of you. And in that moment, he points us to a deeper insight that Solomon understood about us, but didn't fully understand until what Jesus came. Is that the reason that our attempts to take control of our thought life still fails, the reason I do this diligently every day and I still struggle with my OCD, is because at the core of our being is a tainted well. That there is a broken cistern, which was an ancient word that meant well. And because it's damaged, because it's been tainted, ultimately the water that flows out of it gets tainted along with it. And so while Solomon was pointing us to the disciplines that could help us regain control of our thought life, what Jesus does is he tells how we can have a different well in the first place. Said so the core of Christianity is this profound truth, this Life liberating truth where religion had tried to force change through behavior modification. And unfortunately, some of you probably experienced that growing up with some religious authority slapping your hand with a ruler. Or being forced to memorize rule after rule after rule after rule as if somehow something out there could force change in there. Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. Change doesn't happen from outside in, from behavior modification. The good news that I have is that I'm not trying to make you have clean water when it's not possible. I've come to dig a new well and for your life to dwell in it. And there's so much rich, deep, philosophical conversations that I would love to have with some of you because I recognize that this is a challenging thing. But this explains so much because Christopher Hitchens, who's a brilliant thinker who passed away last year, he was an atheist, and one of the lines that he wrote that I thought was so tragic and that was, caused him to miss so much of what he could have had in life was he wrote, you are a body, period. That's all you are. You're just a body. Your chemical reactions, your elements arranged in certain molecular structures, and that's all there is. End of sentence. And Jesus shows up and out of the richness of the Jewish scriptures and what he brings into the Christian scriptures, he says, no, 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 you have a body. But you're more than just a body. I was explaining this to my little girl this week when we were talking about life and death and how this whole thing works. I said, do you ever notice how you get surprised by time, how school just started, but now it's like, it's like the 100th day is approaching. She's like, yeah, I can't believe how fast it's gone by. I'm like, you know, what's interesting is that fish, it's like fish never notice they're wet, they just notice when they dry. Like fish don't have this sense of like wetness because that's life. She's like, yeah, that's what they're made for. I'm like, yeah, if, if all we are is just the body and we're byproducts of evolutionary systems and space-time continuum and all that comes with that, then why are we so surprised by the very thing that we live in? Why do we get caught off guard by time passing if all there is is this body in time? And I was like, sweetie, I think the reason you and I get surprised by time is because we were made to live forever. I was like, you don't know this yet, but one day you're going to see it. Like, I'm 30 years older than my daughter. But I still feel as young and as alive as I did when I was her age. There's a part of me that has not aged since I first stepped foot on this earth. And then there's another part of me that has aged. And normally where I get hurt is the part of me that has not aged steps into control and forgets the part of me that has aged is not like it. And then I end up doing something that I should not be doing. And my wife is like, you've been listening to that part of you that did not age, didn't you? Don't listen to that part because that part, the other part has aged. And so my daughter's like, oh, that makes so much sense. And that there's a part of you and I. We call it our soul. And that the soul of who we are, which is at the seat of who we are. The good news of Christianity is that God has come so that that person can be made new. Uh, Another way I would describe it to to my daughter or even when I do the 112 is I talk about software and hardware. This is our hardware. But our soul is kind of like software. And all of us have experienced The reality, like what we did earlier, when this wasn't working, was the hardware was there. All of it was still there. But why wasn't it working? Because something had happened in the software. And the software of who we are is broken. And Jesus came and said, I have come to bring new life. Not just new life in this hardware, but new life in the software that keeps breaking, that keeps keeps locking up, that keeps getting in the way of what you really want in life. I've come to make that new. And that the good news of Christianity is that no matter who you are, what you are, where you've been, where you are going, that he's come so that you can have life from the inside out. And so all the thoughts that have marked your life, all the things that have have defined you, they don't have to keep defining you. All the things that people have used to describe you, that have nurtured self-loathing, that have, lo- that have nurtured senses of worthlessness and how you don't measure up or there's something lacking. All of that gets erased because he's come to make you new. And that newness is what can mark us in this year too. That regardless of what 2019 held for you, 2020 can be different because you have in this room at this very moment an ability to decide to step into the new that he wants to give to you. And we call that becoming a Christian. And for those who are already a Christian, we get the reminder that he's come to make us new. And we can step into that new too. Knowing that he really has covered us He really has graced us and loved us, that he knows us and that he's made us new in the process too. And that for some of us today, maybe that step is to make that first step to step into faith. Maybe it's like what I said last week when maybe this year is a year that instead of rejecting Christianity, you inspect it a little bit i'll give you a book i'll buy you coffee we can have some really deep deep philosophical questions and answer sessions because i've struggled with the questions you struggle with too i used to pick on christians because i thought they were stupid when i said that whole let go let god thing i meant that i used to get fired up with the oversimplistic check your brain at the door faith that i sometimes bumped up against And what I can tell you is you have legitimate questions and your legitimate questions require legitimate answers and there are legitimate answers to the questions you have. And before you reject it, you should at least lean in and to inspect it because there's hope there. And that for those who've already stepped into that journey called Christianity, maybe for you, your next step is to reclaim what's already true about you, which is you've been made new. And to stop living out of the old. And to stop taking your cues from what the old you said about you. And that for all of us, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, this is what I know to be true. Is that you and I can experience a better tomorrow by beginning to take control of our thoughts today. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.